0: The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church 8 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC8. This is Secret Church 8, Episode 6. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a... He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Sakiyas, <laughs> Sakiyas, going to your house today? No, oh, yes. That was beautiful. Yes. I don't know if that translates into into China China. I don't know if they know that song. Like, anyway, yeah, okay. So this wee little man, like, isn't that unfortunate? Like, that's the first thing we think of when we think of Zacchaeus. The guy gave away like half of his stuff, and we think, what a wee little man. <laughs> <laughs> man, it's unfortunate. Jesus comes in, comes into his house. Zacchaeus stood and said, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Jesus said to him, that's a good idea, Zacchaeus. That's a great example, Zacchaeus. Are you sure that's what you want to do, wee little man? (laughs) No, Jesus said to him, this is startling. Today, salvation has come to this house. Wow, the basis of salvation, divine grace, an encounter with the son of man who came to seek and save those who were lost. The fruit of salvation, just generosity, justice and generosity, following up right on the heels of the rich young ruler intentionally in the book of Luke. Giving it away. All right, next story, Mark chapter 14. Oh, this one, this story. A woman comes with an alabaster flack of ointment of pure nard, very costly, pours it over his head. Some who said, why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. They scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you will always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body pre- beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her unfortunately the classic proof text for indulging in possessions and ignoring the poor. I've had this quoted to me on so many different occasions from people when talking about giving to the poor and they say, well, it's it's not that important. I mean, Jesus himself said you always have the poor among you. As if, oh, okay. Well, they'll always be starving, so let, let them starve. Not only is that Absurd logic. But it totally misses the point of this text. Jesus is not devaluing social justice. When he says you can help the poor anytime you want, the implication is you need to help the poor anytime you want. You need to be doing that regularly. Jesus is doing that all throughout the Gospels. He's not devaluing social justice. He is condemning self-righteous judgmentalism. He rebukes this woman not because he rebukes those who are accusing this woman not because they were concerned for the poor, but because they were showing self righteousness and asserting themselves over her. This is a unique occasion in redemptive history that warrants a lavish gift. It warrants a lot. La- when Jesus is about to go to the cross, for someone to offer this expensive offering that makes sense. That doesn't become a standard for total extravagance in the Western world now. This one fires me up. The normal practice of redemptive history includes consistent generosity. The only thing this passage teaches, or the things this passage teaches, is that Jesus is pleased with an extravagant grift right before he goes to the cross, and he normally expects people to care for the poor. That's what this passage teaches You've got Deuteronomy chapter 15, where, where, where they say, um, or De- Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, they will never cease to be poor in the land. But don't forget, we saw this earlier, right after that. It says, so open your wide ha- hand wide to your brother, to the needy and the poor, in your land. Okay, next one. Mark chapter 11, cleansing of the temple. Um, people, we, well, the temple is designed to display God's purity. That's clear. God, God desires for his purity and his holiness to be displayed in the temple. And so Jesus turning the t- tables over as they were making profit. He's showing us that God does not intend worship for world to gain. He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7, talking about this is not a den of robbers. This is not worship for world to gain. And not just that. The temple is designed not just to display God's purity, but to reflect God's purpose. God does intend worship for worldwide glory. Here's the deal. When he says, my house, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. We focus on the first part. We say, so we're supposed to, when we get together, we're supposed to pray. That's not the point. Isaiah 56, and you got it quoted there, or got it listed there. Isaiah 56, verse 6 and 7 is a, is a prophecy about how the nations will come to the temple to worship. And with the way the temple was set up, you had this you had this outer court, the court of the Gentiles. You had an inner court where only Jewish people could go. You had a sign that said, Gentiles don't come any further. And then you had in the center, the Holy of Holies. And as you progressed toward the center, less and less people could come, right? Where did they set up all these tables? In the Holy of Holies? Certainly not in the inner court. Certainly not in the outer court, the court where the who were. The Gentiles, the place that was designated for the nations to come and encounter the glory of God, they had set up as a market. They disregarded the purpose of God and said, "Let let the nations go to hell. That's what he was turning tables over for because they missed the point of worship and they abused it with their possessions. Next passage, Mark chapter 12, asking about taxes. And basically, They thought they were trapping Jesus when they asked him these questions about taxes. Because to say, yes, you should pay taxes would be to show allegiance to Rome. To say no would be cause for rebellion. I mean, it would be rebellion and cause for punishment. So he affirms the paying of taxes. says, give your taxes to your government. Let me see the coin. Caesar's on it? Well, it's Caesar's. Give your taxes to your government. But at the same time, your, your lives belong to God. Government's not sovereign. Caesar's not sovereign. God is sovereign. So you may give your taxes to your government. You give your trust to your God. Give your taxes to your government. Give your trust to your God. Mark chapter 12. This is the fascinating story. Put yourself in the role of this woman's financial counselor. She's got two coins left. She says, I think I'm going to go give it all. Well, that's sweet. But let's think about this. God wants you to eat. And God wants you to take care of yourself and and you've already you've already suffered enough. God understands hold on to your two coins and Jesus looks at her this is intimidating enough to see Jesus watching what's going on here watching every detail as people put coins in here, knowing every single detail of the money we spend and he sees her put these two her last two coins in there. And commends her for it. What is that about? Jesus commends sacrificial giving, giving beyond our ability to give. This is not saying that every widow is supposed to give away everything they have. I don't need to universalize this. Jesus is commending sacrificial giving, and he's showing us that sacrifice is measured more by relative risk than by actual amount. Well you say, What do you mean? Who it's not that she put the most money in the offering, is it? monetarily two copper coins, but her sacrifice was far, far greater. Genuineness is measured more by self-denying humility than by self-promoting piety. That's when you, when you look at the context, the picture is, is contrasting what she had done with what the religious leaders did. Okay, now the parables of Jesus. Almost a third of Jesus' parables deal directly with money and possessions. So we've got to, and sometimes, I mean, oftentimes, Jesus uses money to illustrate a proper understanding of the kingdom. It's an illustration, but then shows us how a proper understanding of the kingdom transforms our use of money. So you got a parable of two debtors. We're going to fly through this. We've got to get to the rest of the New Testament. Um, Jesus celebrates with sinners, and Jesus cares for outcasts. So he's, he's attracting, again, the rich and the poor. Celebrates with sinners, cares for acts, uh, outcasts. Parable, the seed among thorns. The seed rises up, and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for things enter in and choke out the word. Listen to this. Possessions can keep people out of the kingdom of God. Parable of the hidden treasure and fine pearl. Love this. Man walking in a field, stumbles upon a treasure. It's worth more than Everything he has and we'll ever have put together. So what does he do? He leaves it. He goes and sells everything. People say, you're nuts. Why are you selling everything? He said, I'm going to buy that field over there. They say, why are you going to buy that field? He says, I've got a hunch. <laughs> and he smiles and he walks away. And they think he's crazy. But inside he knows he's found something worth losing everything for. We have found someone worth losing everything for. That's the point. They found someone, something worth losing. everything. We have found someone worth losing everything for. Christ is our treasure. Abandoning possessions for Christ is not a sacrifice. Abandoning possessions for Christ is smart. Smart. Parable of the good Samaritan. Oh, man, there's no way. Um, <sighs> okay, this is not just a story about helping other people. Point of the story. This is not just about a story about helping other people. This is a story about needing a new heart. Needing a new heart. The reality is what Jesus does in telling the story is he is exposing in this teacher of the law who's asking the question, that there's a problem in his heart as he's trying to justify who, she, who he should give to. He needs a new heart, the heart of mercy. See the love God requires. This is Matthew 22, 37 through 40. It's listed right before the good parable of the Good Samaritan here. See the love God requires. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. Undivided love for God. Unselfish love for others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that. Have you ever done that for somebody? What this Samaritan did in caring for this needy man on the road. Have you ever cared for somebody like that? Have you ever worked to get everything they need without question, providing for everything they need? I bet you have. For yourself. And Jesus says, you're supposed to love others the same way. That's, that's strong. See the love God requires. Embrace the love God offers Don't miss it. The point in the story is we need to realize our own poverty. This guy thought he could justify himself. He needed to realize he needed, if he had at the very beginning when Jesus said, the law says, love your neighbor as yourself, do this and you will live. If he had said, but I can't do that. I need help to do that. And that would have changed the whole conversation. We need to see our poverty and receive his mercy. Christ has loved us like this. Before we can show the kind of mercy we see in Luke 10 to others, we need to receive that kind of mercy from God. Then we're free to give the love God desires. His love compels us. His love compels us. Love for God results in love for others. We're not motivated to care for the poor by guilt. If we know what we ought to do when we feel guilty, that's not enough. That's what the Levite and the priests, as they were walking by, they knew what they ought to do. We're motivated to care for the poor by the gospel by the fact that God has, has saved us when we were in need, and when we realized that we were utterly destitute for him and he drew us up out of the pit, it makes sense for us to now see someone in the pit and draw them up. His love is comprehensive. Mercy does not restrict who is loved. Mercy does not restrict how much one is loved. It's com- comprehensive and his love is costly. Mercy from God takes great risks. Samaritan, as he cared for this man. Mercy from God involves great sacrifice. And mercy from God leads to great reward. Leads to great reward. That totally did no justice to the parable of the good Samaritan. Moving on. (laughs) Parable of the rich fool land of a rich man produced plentifully thought to himself what shall I do I have nowhere to store my crops he said I'll do this I'll tear down my barns and build large ones there I'll store up all my grains and my goods and I will say to my soul soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink be merry.' the American dream in action God said to him fool this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared whose will they be So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, is not rich toward God. The man is covetous, desiring more and more and more and more. The man is consumed with acquiring more and more possessions. It's greedy. The man is self-centered. Six times you see that first person pronoun, I, I, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll get this, I'll get this. He hoarded possessions for himself. He hoarded possessions for himself and he held possessions from God. Man-centered in his possessions, not God-centered. And his soul was required of him. The man is self-condemning. Not because he's rich. He's not condemned by Christ because he's rich. Because he is idolatrous. Because his life demonstrated a love for possessions. Covetousness is idolatry. We're going to see that over and over again. Covetous is idolatry and it destroys and damns our souls. The parable of the great banquet. Go out and invite people. People are too busy. And so... They turn away, and so he invites the least expected. The kingdom belongs to the least expected. The kingdom belongs to the least attached. Those three men who were invited said, I've married a wife, therefore I can't come. I have five yoke of oxen, and i got to go examine them. I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Those aren't bad things. A wife is not a bad thing. Field, not a bad thing. Five yoke of oxen, not a bad thing. But, good things that we can attach ourselves, it is possible to be so focused on earthly treasures, good earthly treasures that you forsake eternal treasure. Good things can keep you from the kingdom of God. The parable of the dishonest manager this one is all over the board when you look at commentaries and luke sixteen it's it's it 's basically lauding shrewd management, but that 's not the point. One primary cl- conclusion here. You read Luke 16. Use earthly possessions to accomplish eternal purposes. Jesus is lauding the use of earthly possessions to accomplish eternal eternal purposes. When it comes to our money, we can serve money and use God for our own means, or we can serve God and use money to accomplish his mission. Money makes a great servant, but a horrible master. Three points to consider here, because he goes on to then talk about uh, one who's faithful in a very little will also be faithful in much. One who's, one who's dishonest in a very little is dishonest in much, and so on. Our faithfulness with small tasks shows our fitfulness for large tasks. We're continually being tested in the small things, brothers and sisters. This debunks all of our if-onlys. If only I had more money, I'd give more to the poor. If, If you don't give to the poor sacrificially with a little bit of money, then you're not going to give to the poor sacrificially with a lot of money. Our treatment of material resources demonstrates our trustworthiness with spiritual riches. Our stewardship of another's treasure reflects our own responsibility with our own talents. The real trustworthiness of someone is what they do with someone else's resources. And that's the whole point. We've been entrusted with resources from God. Parable, the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man, wealth, enjoying all that he has. Poor man sitting at his gates, getting the scraps from the rich man. They both die. The rich man goes to hell, the poor man Lazarus goes to heaven. the rich man in hell is begging so let me let me be it just cooled off a little bit no there's a bridge that's been that the, the, the divides you from hell and heaven, and you cannot ever cross that. He begs for them to go and then tell his brothers about this and they say and they, and they, Abraham says no even if even if they saw someone rise from the dead, they have rejected the Word of God just like you have so The root cause here, unbelief. The rich man lacked faith in God. That's key. He had rejected the word of God. He had lacked faith in God. That's where the whole story ends up. There's a divine contrast in this story. God responds to the needs of the poor with compassion. Lazarus' name literally means one whom God helps. It's the only time a name is given to somebody in one of these parables. Now, this doesn't mean that just because somebody is poor means they go to heaven. Obviously, that is not true. But the picture is God responding to the needs of the poor with compassion and God responding to those who neglect the poor with condemnation. It's not saying the rich go to hell, but it is saying those who don't trust in God and as a result neglect the poor, they receive condemnation. Remember, the core issue is lack of faith in God, an eternal consequence. If in our unbelief, if in our unbelief, that's the key, that's where it flows from. Faith or lack of faith? Lack of faith. If in our unbelief we indulge ourselves and neglect the poor, earth will be our heaven. This guy had the good life on earth. Earth will be our heaven and eternity will be our hell. God help us to hear this warning. The beginning of this story, rich man enjoying all the treasures, Lazarus sitting with sores all over his body, scraping by. The beginning of this story, who would you rather be? At the end of this story, who would you rather be? It's a humbling question, a clear choice. Are we going to continue in hollow religion that neglects the poor? He's saying this to religious leaders who are justifying their use of money and their indulgence in money. This is big. Caring for the poor is not an optional extra in salvation. It's not an optional extra. Caring for the poor is necessary evidence of salvation. Unbelief leads to neglect of the poor. Belief leads to care for the poor. Caring for the poor, not what saves us. Remember that. Not what saves us, but the fruit of belief. So what does this parable call us to do? Turn in honest repentance. Trust God and care for the poor. Hear the word humbly. Hear it. Receive the word. And obey the word quickly. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The parable of the talents is... Next, master entrusted his servants with talents and he goes away and he comes back and some of the servants have invested them and, and received, uh, they've grown. And then one guy has just sat on it and done nothing with it. It's been safe, but he gets back and he's proud to show the master. And the master says, ah, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So not a good day for that servant. Clearly, the message of the parable is that we will be responsible for the time, talents, and treasures God entrusts to us. We will be responsible for the time, talents, and treasures God entrusts to us. And we must be ready for the master's return. Will we be found sitting on our treasure for our sake, brothers and sisters, or will we be found spreading our treasure for his sake? Final one, and it's really not a parable, the debate, sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, you remember the picture. He says to the righteous, Those who are righteous, those who have been made right with God, this flows from them. It's not them earning salvation. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick and in prison, you came and visited me. Therefore, you received the inheritance from my Father. And he says to those who had not done those things in their unrighteousness because you did not feed the poor and bring drink to the thirsty and clothes and visit the The needy, then you are cast into darkness. The righteous turn their attention to Christ by serving the material needs of his people. One of the startling things of this passage is that Christ identifies himself with his people and says when you do something for the, the people of God who are in need, you do something for Christ. The righteous turn their attention to Christ then by serving the material needs of his people. They go to heaven I love that Spurgeon said, they fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the sick. Why? For Christ's sake. Because it was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for Jesus. They did it because they delighted to do it, because they could not help doing it, because their new nature impelled them to do it. It's good. On the other hand, the unrighteous turn away from Christ by ignoring the material needs of his people. They go to hell. Not... Not even because they didn't do anything deliberately wrong to them. Not because they did anything deliberately wrong to the poor. They ignored the poor. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.